Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the amazing women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with the core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this very special episode, we are honored to be joined by Lorna and Brad Catling, relatives of the legendary Virginia Hall. Virginia worked with the United Kingdom's clandestine special operations executive and the American Office of Strategic Services in France during World War II and rounded out her career of service at the Central Intelligence Agency. Virginia Hall was the most highly decorated female civilian during World War II, having received the Distinguished Service Cross. She was the only female civilian to receive one such medal during the Second World War. Brad and Lorna, we are so thrilled, honored, and excited to have you both with us. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So to kick us off, we would love for you to tell us a bit about who you are, who both of you are, and what your relationship is to Virginia Hall. So Lorna, would you like to to start first? Well, I'm her niece. Dindy is the nickname that I'll be using because her brother couldn't pronounce her name when they were little tots and it stuck. Anyway, she is my father's sister, and I didn't meet her until the war was over. So I was 16 when the war was over, and she returned home. So I never really knew her in depth. Um, I, I would see her several weekends a year, maybe more. But, you know, I'm I'm limited, but I'm sure I know more than Brad does because he came <laughs> considerably later yeah. in the picture because yeah. Brad's my son. I grew up, I went to college, I had a few jobs, got married, was a, a homebody and raised two children and Eventually got divorced and also worked at H and R Block, which I love because it was like a puzzle with numbers. Love and, that. I don't know. Then I was a zoo docent for years, and then I went to senior education at uh, Notre Dame in Baltimore, and and that's where you are now, right? Right. You're in Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. I grew up actually in the farm where Virginia loved, that she loved, I can't say I loved. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it was during the war and there was gas rationing and there were nobody nobody near. I mean, I couldn't walk to anybody. So it was my brother and myself. And I loved school and camp and where other kids were. But I was very happy to move to the city (laughs) Never so you're it. a city girl at heart. You're a city girl at heart. Mom, you also took care of Dindy in her in her last years. Well, I I did go over. I mean, she lived close to Washington because she was 
you know, working at the CIA. So she would call and ask me to come over and change the sheets and go. Oh, she had all these huge dogs and she had a situation with the local butcher where he would sell her the meat that was too too old to sell. And so I would go and collect that and run errands. And then go home, and mm-hmm. but I I did that the last year I would say until she died because she she got more feeble last year. Is wow, that that's that's wonderful. I mean, that's that's you know, thank you for for giving us an intro like that. That was that was great. So, Brad, um, tell us a little bit about you. Um, well, Dindy was was my great aunt, and. You know, we would speak on the telephone at Christmas and on birthdays. We'd exchange presents. Um, I'd write little thank you notes to her for, for what she gave me. I remember that the presents that she gave me all were associated with animals. because She loved animals and she knew that I did too. And so that was a little bit of a, a link that, that we had. But I, you know, when I think of, when I think of Dindy, I think of her um, at the, at, um, in Barnesville at the, she had a beautiful home and it was on lots of acres. I don't, I don't know if it was a hundred acres or 50 acres. Oh, but wow. plenty I think it was of, around 40. It was beautiful. They, they were rolling kind of rolling Maryland Hills. Um, it may have reminded her of, of France, you know, it was open, but it had sort of hedgerows and um, very open, very beautiful. She loved to garden. And, um, and yes, she had her five, they were standard poodles. Five. I was going to ask you what kind of yeah. dogs they were. Yeah. Well, I, I think that maybe because, well, she, she obviously liked really smart dogs, but the poodle, if you didn't know, is the national dog of France. So that might've had something to do with, with her decision to, to buy that kind of dog. I don't remember what any of the dog's names were, but mom had a name for them as a group. She called them, <laughs> she called them those damn dogs. <laughs> well, they probably moved as a pack, right? They, they jumped know. on you and barked. I mean, you could, they had, Paul had to pull them away when you went in and they calmed down. But the neat thing was Gindy used to feed them they would line up and sit in front of her and she would take a silver spoon and scoop it up and feed each one individually. And they were good as gold waiting their turn. <laughs> silver spoon. I just She's ate. a woman after my own heart. My husband would say, even though I don't have a silver spoon, that I feed my dogs with a silver spoon. <laughs> so uh, I love that far as her home she had a greenhouse that she could get into from the house and she had bulbs I mean like the whole field of bulbs which was so gorgeous in the spring and lots of vegetables and Paul had been a chef I remember they had Jerusalem artichokes and they made pickles out of them for Christmas presents which were delicious. Unfortunately, the stores don't carry Jerusalem artichokes much. So. so can you tell our listeners who Paul is? Paul was her husband, and she met him went overseas. He was in the OSS also and stationed under her, under her. 
And I gather he they worked together beautifully and a romance um, came about and eventually they married. Um, And he was, Dindy was a little intimidating. I mean, but a little intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) He He was a clown and he was a tease and he was a lot of fun. And they just seemed to work together very, very well. As Dindy said, if she wanted to go fishing, he was right there ready or any activity, he was ready to go. I would say it was a good life. So I'm wondering, did you know, uh, you know, I think you might both have different answers, Lorna and Brad, as far as did you know when she was alive that she was going to be or that she was this historical figure? We look at her now and she's revered right among the intelligence community and there's books and movies about her but growing up um you know did you have that feel like was that the case did you know that no because she passed it off somebody said you ought to write a book and she said it was only six years that's not worth a book (laughs) (laughs) i mean of course she couldn't talk about it and she wouldn't anyway and it was just something she did. Well, I remember, I remember Dindy as two people, as, you know, a great aunt of mine that looked like everybody else's great aunt. Mm-hmm. But then there was this superhero side. And we did know a bit about it because, and I realized this a couple of years ago, the citation that she was given, um, written about her for the Distinguished Service Cross. Mom, we knew that she had led the French resistance or part of the French resistance. And, you know, she, we knew the outline of what she had done, but she never elaborated on it. Um, this is kind of, this is kind of fun. I remember as a little kid um, talking to a friend of mine and saying, well, my great aunt um, has a wooden leg and she was a spy and she killed Nazis and, and <laughs> <grew up> trains. <laughs> and I remember the, I remember the blank look on this kid's face. Just completely, because the way I described her didn't describe anybody. You know, that type of person really didn't exist back then. So he was, he was just, he didn't, he didn't know what to say. I'm sure in his Um, mind, it was like a fictional character, you know, like. Yeah. I mean, if even that. um, I mean, at the time, I'm not sure a lot of people had even dreamt up a woman who could do what Dindy actually actually did. I was just going to so, say you you couldn't yeah. even make that up. Like it, it, it no. you couldn't. Um, it's amazing. So yeah. you know, as our listeners um, know, Iron Butterfly loves to tell stories of real women in the intelligence community. Would you be able to share with us a few stories about Virginia and speak to who she was as a professional and more importantly as a person, a family member, and a wife? Well, I mean, as I say, she and Paul seemed to hit it off very well. And she would come over for a weekend every so often. And um, But she couldn't talk about her work. Or she couldn't talk about her past. So um, I do remember those. one of her close friends was an ambassador. And she brought him and his family over. And I was very impressed with this. You know, I just didn't know her home life that well. But even her her work life, right? She did. She was, uh, you know, a, a typical CIA person who kept it close to to heart, right? And didn't really share 
um, a right. whole lot. And so you learned, I'm sure you guys learned a lot of this after the fact, not well, sure. things that she yeah. was telling you, but what you've learned since. Yeah. When the Bay of Pigs happened, she said, Whew, I'm glad I wasn't on that case. But she never told us what she did do, but she didn't have anything to do with that. I have a little bit of insight into her as a as a young as a young child. Um, just we've we've got a whole stack of really beautiful photographs of, of her at different stages of her life. And I've been paying a lot of attention to them because there's a there's insight in into her I'm through sure. those pictures. So there's one picture, Mom, I don't know if you remember this, but it's it's of Dindy being held by her mother. She's twenty-five months old. And her mother's got a big smile on her face and she's got a thousand dollar smile on her face. And but her father on the on the back of that picture wrote this note about about her. He said, and now we come to Ginger jolly all day long, even at night, except when her teeth are bothering her. And I, <laughs> I thought that was such a lovely thing because, I mean, jo- this is a two year old. Yeah. And jolly all day long. You know, she had a she uh. had a very you know, she had a very even temperament. And, you know, mom, as you've said, she was comfortable wherever you saw her. There was a signal anyway of her personality from a very young age. Um, you know, and she was also brilliant. Um, she didn't do that well in school, but, you know, she, she sort of picked and chose what she wanted to focus on. Um, you know, for instance, she went to her in her, her senior year of college. Uh, she decided that she wanted to um, she wanted to go to Vienna and and study there, but which she did. But when she got there, she didn't know how to speak German at all yet. And um, she didn't know where she was going to go to college. She just figured that she'd find a place after she got there. And I'm going to read you a couple lines from a letter that she wrote to her parents on the first on the first. Well, she wrote to them after a month, but but this letter or what I'm going to read is about her first night, her first night there. And you can see a little bit of case officer in her, even at this point. Alas, I arrived when the shades of night were drawn and all I could see from my taxi windows was an endless succession of streets that resembled one another to such a degree that I began to doubt the integrity of my chauffeur. And had I and had I been able, I am sure that I would have taxed him with taking me around the same street 10 times to roll the meter a few shillings up the line. I am thankful now for my ignorance, for I have been over that several times and find that the man's honesty was irreproachable and that he took me to the pension by the most direct, though seemingly circuitous route. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that, that wonderful? That is wonderful. That is yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And the, it's, it's kind of a long letter. It's three pages. And it's, you know, it's, it's an innocent, it's, there's a lot of innocence in the letters, in the letter, because she's so excited to be there. And, you know, she's just consuming everything around her. She, mm-hmm. you know, she, she got to know the people really quickly. She got to know the language really quickly. And at one point in this, in this letter, it's funny. She said that the thing that made her happiest was that she was learning the swear words 
of, <laughs> of the German swear words. So she could, you know, she could pick up on that part of the conversation anyway. Yeah. She At the very that, least, she knew when right. someone was swearing. Oh, my that's goodness. Right. I that's love right. that. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that. That was awesome. Sure. Virginia had a reputation for fiercely paving her own unconventional path. And could you share with us a few times that she did that? Well, I remember a story where she, when she was going to school, she wore a small snake wrapped around her wrist as a bracelet, which is a little unconventional. <laughs> that is unconventional. <laughs> I remember she also had an avocado tree that she had grown from an avocado seed, and it was as tall as the roof. I mean, it was indoors, and it oh, was wow. right up to the roof of that that room, which is a little unusual. <laughs> no, uh, those are great. Just a couple more. Just a couple more examples. Um, Basically, everything that she did, almost everything that she did, women at the time didn't do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just the fact that she wanted to be a diplomat. There were only six in the Foreign Service at that point. Um, but she didn't care. She wanted to do it. And so she started to do what she needed to do. She knew that she needed languages. She knew that she needed to travel. So that's why she went to France and Poland and Italy and um than Estonia, you know, just things that were kind of unspeakable, not unspeakable, but unheard of right. for, for women of her age. She also lived with Paul before they were married. What? That's a secret. That's a secret right there. There's a, <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a wonderful picture of her driving her parents' Model T. Um, you know, she drove a, an ambulance for the French army and, you know, she did all the incredible things that, that she did during the war, but I, I kind of think that she had a, she just had a, you know, she, she felt compelled to do different things and she simply did them. She simply moved forward and she just did them. I, I'm wondering if, um, if you know, I mean, was your brother like that? Did he have that sense of adventure? Did, did your grandparents See, encourage my great, that? My great grandfather was supposed to have Stowawayed on his, his father's ship when he was nine years old. And my great grandfather's father had a, a boat building business and he had his own clipper ship. So, but to stow away at nine is pretty unconventional. <laughs> well, to be a clipper ship captain was kind of unconventional too. <laughs> the swashbuckling. I think of the family probably started with him because um, he, he described himself in like a, um, as a, as a coal merchant. And mm -hmm. so his business, but the family also had a, they were also coal merchants, wholesale coal merchants. And so I think a lot of the business that he did uh, was up and down the East coast with his hold filled with, but he did go to China, Brad. He did yeah. go to China because I remember Dindy saying that he stopped in California and mm -hmm. numerous of the crew uh, disappeared and he had to go and haul them back on the <laughs> ship. Because, of course, it was sort of during the gold rush period. 
Um, oh, wow. He he had to go round them up and get them back on. So it does run in the family. It does this yes. adventurous spirit. It, you yes. know. Yeah, my, my grandparents, Gindy's parents, they were very sober. I mean, I understood that uh, Ned, her father, was extremely nice. Everybody said how wonderful he was. And my grandmother was very nice, and neither one of them were adventurous. So it skipped that generation <laughs> and went to in the next one. And it went all to her. It went all to right. her. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because my grandfather, Lorna's father, mm-hmm. was quite quiet. He was he was sort of I don't know whether sullen, but he was a quiet, interest you know in inner kind of a person. Um, so their personalities were were very different, um, although he was one of main confidants. So mm. I didn't, didn't you say that, that she said that she considered him her intellectual equal? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a modest thing to say about your brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it also shows that the trust she had with her brother and the, you know, she felt like he was her confidant. Right. So that's, that's amazing. Paul was also her confidant. Um, you know, it, it must have been awfully nice for them to be able to speak to each other because they could talk about anything, anything that they had already gone through. So I always thought that that might be that was a that was a relief for them both, really, to be able to to talk about what they did. Oh yeah, absolutely. Cover. Yeah. So I know we have chatted about this before, and I would love for you guys to share with us. Um, you know, Virginia transitioned from an operations role, um, really, uh, to a desk job at CIA, which um, even now uh, making that transition is is very difficult for those who make it. Um, what was it like for her? And did she enjoy being, you know, here uh in in Virginia and a- having a desk job after having this kind of whirlwind type of career prior to that? I think Dindy loved being a spy. I think she loved the adventure and the freedom of making her own decisions and and I know she hated or didn't like very much being an underling in the State Department, more of a secretarial job. Mm-hmm. And she complained that she wasn't really happy at the CIA because I think she was sort of a secretarial rather than active go get them type of. Right. I know she loved France, but I think she really loved the adventure of the whole thing. That being said, there was some um, information that was not public that was released to the public about Virginia's time at the CIA. And it was interesting because she did she did progress. Her pay increased, um, but she was a case officer all the way through. Maybe at the very end, she came up a notch because I remember re- I did read an article about um, a mission that she was actually that she led she had a leadership role in um it was um overthrowing the british guyanese government in like 1964 and um you know they they did that by influencing the elections with propaganda um she spoke 
with union leaders. You know, she she was doing she was doing some pretty heavy lifting on that operation, which I gather was successful. He was he was um, non elected again. I think, and that was probably because of her French background, correct? That she was probably well. That makes yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, but <laughs> and then she and then there was another little note that she had written. Um, she was writing about her. She was asked to by the CIA to write sort of a summary of what she had done over the years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have this sort of really broad outline of some of the things that she did. And it seemed like in the fifth, like 55, 54, 55, uh, she describes working in India or on a project that had to do with India. And that was when the um, the mission that was that was called the uh, the Kashmir Prince. Kashmir Princess, mm. the the um, the president of China, who at the time was Zhou Enlai, and an assassination attempt was made on his life by planting a bomb in a plane that they knew he was going to be on. And then the person that they had gotten to set to actually put the bomb on the plane um, was obviously paid off by somebody mm-hmm. to do that. And he was all over the town. He was drinking in the bars and buying everybody <laughs> drinks. And so why was this man that, you know, a simple mechanic all of a sudden so wealthy? So it was decided that this guy had to get, he had to be removed from the country. And, and he was. Um, but I don't know. I don't know any more than that. But I, I think that she had something to do with, with that. That's amazing. So I think this is kind of a good segue um, to ask, you know, how do you believe she paved the way for all women um, for, you know, in the intelligence community? You know, what 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 about her do you think is something that, you know, all of us, you know, she really kind of broke down those barriers and paved the way for for all of us now that are in the community? Well, She just did what she did. I don't think she ever gave any thought to the fact that it might enhance future women. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was her job. It was what she did. She was very, oh, she she didn't expect to be honored and uh, praised and all that. She just did did it because she liked it or she loved France. So I don't think she ever gave a thought to helping other women. Yeah, it well, was just her strong will. Yeah. yeah. It just happened. Yeah. I have another piece of Virginia's writing that I, I think speaks to this. Oh, wonderful. Um, this was a, a postcard that she wrote from Estonia, where I think for a while she was a clerk at the at the embassy there. Mm-hmm. The letter was here. I'll just read this. On March 9th, 1939, which is four or five months after Kristallnacht, right? Virginia wrote a postcard uh, to her mother at home in Maryland, quote, and so the catastrophe has come. I cannot begin to express the horror I feel at this useless slaughter being embarked upon by the usual enemies of the civilized world. All here is quiet. I am staying. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I, I think in... I think it was that moment when she wrote that letter, you know, confirming her plan to her parents. Right. And I would imagine a lot of people in the intelligence community have written similar letters to their parents. But to me, it sounds like 
I'm staying and I'm going to do everything, everything imaginable to, you know, bring the fight to the, to the enemy. Um, so if there was a piece of advice she might give to, to women in the, in the intelligence community is to stay, you know, yeah. if you're in a, if you're in a difficult place, stay there and finish. She lived under such brutal conditions. You know, she was, she was in France twice, two missions, first time for 15 months. Um, you know, she, she had to endure hunger and dirt and, you know, no showers and just, it was, I, those are sort of frivolous examples, but she had the, the ability to withstand just about anything over the long time. In, in fact, Craig Grally, who was an author of a book called Hall of Mirrors about Virginia. Yeah. I, I heard him do a, a talk and he thought that Virginia's, it was possible that Virginia's strongest, um, her strongest asset was her ability to control herself. Wow. You know, when she hiked over the Pyrenees, mm-hmm. she said that was, she actually did say that to her family. She, she said that her hike over the Pyrenees to escape the Nazis was her the most frightening part of her whole wartime experience because, you know, she was disguising to her guide the fact that she had a wooden leg. And because she knew that if he knew that she was handicapped like that, that he might just leave her on the mountain to die. So she had to kind of stand the pain of walking over the mountain, but also, you know, looked like she wasn't having trouble. Well, how powerful is that? Like her greatest ability was kind of like to control herself, which is the hardest thing for anyone to do. Right. It is. is. So she was, she, when she was in, in the war, she said, well, one of her quotes is that she said she lost a lot of friends because they couldn't keep their mouth closed because they talked too much. She was incredibly disciplined. You know, she, in a way, she sort of invented um, a type of spycraft, if I could say that. Um, yeah. MRD, MRD Foote, who was the, the biographer, the official biographer of the SOE, and he also included information about the, the OSS, um, called her. She, he said that she had a she was like a travel agent for undercover agents. <laughs> and so she met virtually every new agent as they came into France and she would take care of them in a sort of a motherly way. She'd make sure that they had food to eat and they knew how to use food coupons and they knew, you know, what was safe to order. She told them where to go, what train, what, you know, how to, how to get to where they were going. Like the practical things that they needed to know. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And, you know, so in that respect, she was kind of a, mother figure well in fact the resistance fighters of the the haute loire where she was in this on her second mission referred to her as the madonna of the mountain wow so when she just people asked how did you do it and she said it just took common sense mm-hmm. So we have, you know, we say this in our family a lot um, as far as because you had mentioned, you know, she was she might not have been the best at school. But those people who myself included, uh, you know, who might not have been straight A's at school. But I I think I pride myself on common sense and um, Mm -hmm. 
And so that matters when you're when you are out in, you know, a foreign country. And she also she wasn't so bad. Her report card was mostly A's and B's, which I think is pretty darn good. Yeah, (laughs) right. But she wasn't a straight A student, but. She had a lot of them. So. She still did, she did still did well. Yeah, I want to pull this string a little bit more. So, what do you think um, about Virginia coming to life in the events surrounding the week long the week long March Woman in National Security Festival next week? And how do you think she would feel about being honored? Um, pretty much the entire week next week. And how how do both of you feel about the campaign to have Virginia awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor? Well, I think the uh, first part, she wouldn't appreciate it all. <laughs> didn't, didn't want a lot of publicity. And she, in fact, one of the things she wrote after the war and they were asking questions on a form and they said, did you do, did you deserve a medal? And she said, absolutely not. How do you all feel about the campaign, you know, to get her, uh, hopefully that we can get her the Congressional Medal of Honor? Well, I think it would be great, but I think she would have hated it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know well, what? Hold on. Most public uh, <laughs> servants feel that way. She would, she would be, uh, you know, in good company there because most of the women that we know that have served in in the same way that she has served are feel the same way. They feel like it's an honor just to serve, and they don't need the accolades. So I understand that part. If you look at the picture of her receiving the Distinguished Service Cross, mm-hmm. as General Donovan is, is putting the pin on her shoulder, um, the smile on her face, they, I mean, there was a real connection. They were friends. You know, they needed each other, and and they did, each of them did each other a whole lot of good. Um, you know, and so it's really a moment that's captured in that picture, I think. And she's got a big smile on her face, so I think that she enjoyed getting the medal. I don't think that she would have enjoyed getting it in public. But I was kind of thinking about that question that if she had gotten the invitation to this, to the, to the gala on the 18th, anyway, Mm -hmm. um, I think she would have pretended like she never, that it never came in the mail. (laughs) And then she would have, she would have snuck in. And I, I know that she would have been absolutely thrilled to meet, to meet you and all of, all of the women who are in the intelligence community because you know she it was not there at all when she was there right i think that she would be incredibly proud and i think that she would you know maybe wait for everybody to go to a bar and talk to them talk to them there i i i get that i and i (laughs) that's i think that's what people would have loved about her that you know she didn't yeah. need the fanfare of a gala. She she wanted, let's go meet at a bar and have a conversation. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But, you know, she did the president with that medal. They wanted to, Truman to give it to her in a big fanfare. And she wrote a telegram saying, can't do it. I'm um, still operational. Can't do it. <laughs> Wow. That's why Donovan gave it to her in his office, because he had wanted a big to do with the president. Cindy's mother received, and we have a letter from the British 
whoever the British people are who are in charge of, of giving out awards, the MBE that they wanted to give to Virginia, they said, mm -hmm. you know, they tried to get in touch with her, but she wasn't letting on where she was. And this one letter that was sent to her or that was sent to her mother's house said, you know, we've got an MBE waiting for you. If you could just tell, tell us where to send it. And she never did. Oh, so wow. He actually received that MBE posthumously. Um, it was given to my mother and it may be um, on the shelf there behind her. Wow. Um, our listeners know that each episode we end the same way. And we ask each guest if they could give themselves a code name, what would it be and why? But we'd like to change it up a bit on this episode. And uh, we would like to ask you if you could give Virginia a code name. Um, for what she was to you or what you think she represented to others, what would it be and why? Well, I figured that you should call her the Intrepidus. Wow. Wow. So my tell me why. came up with it and I added the is to make it better. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my idea. Well, I, I came it. up with one too. I, I think she would do well with codename Eagle. Oh. Because... She was able to see the world from a thousand feet up. She saw the big picture, but she could also see the infinitesimal details in that picture, just like an eagle can do. And I read a little bit about eagles today, and I found out this wonderful piece of information that female eagles are larger, stronger, and more aggressive, and can carry almost twice the weight than a male eagle can. Wow. So there you <laughs> so, go. Codename Eagle. She's Very she's good. an eagle. I don't know if I could ever thank you both enough for sharing um, all these wonderful stories with us today uh, about Virginia Hall's incredible life and career in the IC. And I don't think that my other 35 plus guests would be uh, upset if I said that I think this is my favorite episode of Iron Butterfly oh. thus far. Um, oh. Thank you so very much. Um, it has been such a pleasure to get to know both of you and to get to know Virginia Hall a little bit better. And thank you both for sharing your stories with us today. You bet. Well, it's a pleasure for us also. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> so this has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the Amazing Women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we would like to thank Katie Naquin Hopkins, Amanda Young, Liz Herndon, and Maeve Cronin for all the work behind the mic. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. <laughs>